the average fish here like is a, is a good solid uh, good solid spring salmon the, the average fish here is about 10 pounds really we're not we don't get we're not famous for huge fish but we have a really good standard of fish here you know i would i would confidently say 10 to 11 pounds is our average springer here Hello and welcome to the Ireland on the Fly podcast about the people and places of fly fishing in Ireland. Continuing our focus on spring salmon fishing, this week we turn our attention to the Upper Cara fishery in County Kerry and we speak to Mike O'Shea, the fishery manager, to find out about the spring run as well as the rest of the season on the system. Now, based in the spectacular Reeks district between Calorgan and Glen Bay, if you don't catch a fish, just going there alone is worth it for the scenery. Well, maybe the first time, but after that, well, you do want to be landing a salmon or two, I'm sure. So, before we hear from Mike, Tom, how is the fishing going for you as we hit March and the run up to Paddy's Day? Well, Dara, how are you? Um, well, kind of a hit of kind of a hiatus. I mean, and it's always the fear that it'll happen this time of year. The weather has really gone against us. Um, so what there's is not it with much... the lack of rain as well. Like that just Yeah, well, it's just gonna say that. I mean, it's what it's what Mike says talking to him there. You know, he he's saying down down at them. The upper Cara, the river is at summer level. You know, I mean, I was saying to him there, the lakes here are nearly at summer level here. So, you know, we've had no rain. And it's only, God, I'm trying to think, like the lake here was at winter level in early January. So we probably haven't had anything in the last two months. And that that's that's really affected things, really has affected things, you know? And tell me this, with this kind of cold snap as well, like, is that kind of just... Just turn them sullen, like, and turn them off. Like. I think if it goes prolonged, it will. I mean, like, to be honest with you, you're still catching them, but like, you know, a brave man that's out on a day like today, you know, I'm just looking at it here now, and we're waiting for a load of snow to come tonight, according to the all the forecasts. And um, I, it was two degrees today with a biting northeast wind, and it was cold on the land. I looked out, and I actually, technically, I was meant to be out today. I was meant to be out guiding. Uh, all I can say is, thankfully, I'm not. <laughs> right? This is the best way to put it because, yeah, it's, nah, you know. I mean, also, as well, I often think at the start of the year, you don't mind missing a day for conditions. You know, if this was September, now it'd hardly be two degrees in the biting northeast. But if it was September, and let's say only four or five days left of the season, yeah, you might go out. You might <laughs> yeah. say, yeah, yeah, I'll risk it. I'll risk it. But this time you go, nah, nah that's plenty more, more. Plenty more to come. Yeah. Well, it's funny, actually, because I've, um, I'm trying to kind of get out every Friday for a couple of hours, you know, just as a kind of mark that in the diary kind of thing. Um, I'm having sick. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> no, 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 no. Come on. Although this Friday you could be snowed in, but come here. Remember that? Look, it'd be perfect. Remember all those pictures and, and Michael is growing up with trout and salmon. And you'd see these spring fish in, you know, snow covered fields in the background. That could be you, Darren. That could be you. I would be lying if I said I hadn't actually envisaged that. <laughs> um, of just because I just, yeah, like for me, spring fishing, there is something about that, isn't it? Like that, yeah. you just yeah. think, you know, and yeah, and if I'm standing in the river after four hours, <laughs> my nuts up. I don't think I'll be like, I'm like, with leaky waders, more of them later. <laughs> yes, yes, that comes up as well. Although it's funny. A couple of years ago, I don't know, I bought these waders by mistake. Didn't realize what they were. They're, they were um, extra padded. I think they were literally for the Russian <laughs> Kola Peninsula or something. They're literally yeah. like, you. I haven't worn them. Right? I tried them on. I was literally like the Michelin man. I couldn't couldn't walk in them barely. Like, what's the material? Are they are they breathable? Yeah, they're breathable, they? but they're just like, 
duvet stuck down the leg yeah. and the chest of them, right? Literally, yeah. like I think that's what they did. They just put a duvet on the inside and just sewed it up. And um, you can barely walk with them, but I actually think I'm going to take them <laughs> this Friday. <laughs> I'm trying to get a picture like to see what it'd be like. Oh, yeah, I want to see that. I want to see these. These sound very interesting. <laughs> so they're still lagging up in the shed. So hopefully, actually, hopefully there's no leaks. <laughs> I'll find out soon enough. Oh, my God. Can you imagine if there are? And then can you imagine cold. And then if they're all padded, that'll get damp. And sad. yeah, you don't want it. And then you're so you're so kind of fluffed up. You can barely pull yourself out of the river. Like, you know, so I'll let you know how I get on next week. Do, do, do. But remember... You know, you've envisaged the picture, you know, the snowy background, the, the yeah. bar of silver, double figure yeah. bar of silver. There yeah. you go. So, you know, Visualization. My wife always <laughs> tells me, you know, if I come home, you know, empty handed from salmon fishing, which happens quite a bit. Um, and you just don't believe it enough. Like, that makes no sense at all. The you know, conditions, you know, temperature, river height, yeah. time of year. No, no, you just don't believe it enough. If you believed it more, it would happen. I'm like, oh, right, okay. you know what? I'm going to say, I'm kind of with her a bit. You know, confidence is huge. I don't think you're wrong. Yeah, yeah, look, don't get me wrong. I'm. You got to believe every time that swings around, just just in front of the rock. Yeah, I'm going to get the tug. Not every time. Yeah, come on. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, it's not, every time might be slightly approaching demented. Okay, right. I know, look, but it's, it's funny though, isn't it? Like, yeah, well, look, maybe I just need to be more of a glass half full kind of guy. Maybe I don't know. But um, yes. So well, what I'm do you reckon? Be... Are most salmon fishermen glass half full or glass half empty? Just, just mental. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Look, that's, that goes without question. Goes, but, you know, are they glass half full mental or glass half empty mental? <laughs> no, yeah. I suppose, look, you have to be glass half full, don't you? Yeah, you um, do. Actually. I why, think else you do. Would, why else would you try and catch a fish that doesn't eat in the river? Like, you know, in the snow <laughs> with leaky waders. But I'm picturing, picturing trout and salmon. Yeah, the, the front cover. Picture. So front there you cover. go. Oh, I'll let you. No, right. Come here. Let's hear from Mike O'Shea now and find out about spring salmon fishing on the Upper Cara. Um, it's somewhere I want. Hopefully, I'm going to fish soon enough. Um, my list is growing week by week. The more um people we talk to, and I first asked Mike to give us some background to the Upper Cara fishery. The Upper Cara fishery, really, the Cara system is about. Uh, it's probably southwest of our nearest town, which is Killarglen. Uh, Glen Bay is not too far away as well. It's a little bit more west. Um, southwest of Killarglen, just under the McGillicuddy Reeks in the valley of Glencar. It flows down, beautiful scenery, like, you know, flows down through the upper part of the fishery into Cara Lake, down through the lower Cara system, into the estuary at Dukes, if you've ever heard of Dukes, which is in Castlemaine Harbour, the back of Ross Bay Beach, and out into Dingle Bay. So that's where we're situated, lovely part of the world. It's a stunning, stunning part of the country. Actually, what's it like? This time of year, like, are you seeing kind of snow on the McGilla goodies during the winter? Like this morning, there's a good dusting of snow right down to the foot of Carantula and on the high ground around around the fishery. We're high up, you know, we're we're up pretty high there in Glencar. So yeah, it's cold, one two degrees today, so pretty cold. Hardy, hardy anglers would be hardy uh, anglers as well. <laughs> um, and I just want to ask you, how far then before where it flows in at Castle Main? How far is that 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 uh, the river and the system? The length of the system, I suppose, really is about twenty kilometers, really in length. You would have the, like I said, you have the lower Carra River, which is the system below Carra Lake. You Carra Lake itself, which is probably 
maybe five kilometers long. The upper Cara fishery in its entirety, just in the upper part of the private fishery, is something about 12, 12 to 14 kilometers long from Cara Lake up to the source of the system. There's two forks in the system. One fox comes from, uh, if you're driving to Waterville, actually you might often pass a little lake called Lockacoos. And Lockacoos is one leg of our system and that flows and joins midway in the, the Cara River. And the other one comes from a little lake up there called Clune Lake. And above Clune Lake is actually another little lake called Loch Ray. And they flow down and the combination of all those little tributaries and streams flow into the main, which is the main Cara, which is above uh, the famous Blackstones Bridge, if you've ever been there. Yeah. So, like, uh, yeah, like I said, it's a spade river. You know, we're up high in the mountains there. Spade river. We are affected quite a lot by, you know, the precipitation. The rain is, is key to our fishing. And when we don't have rain, we do suffer a little bit. Now, having said that, we have the lakes. So at least somebody can go fishing. It's not like other fisheries where... Maybe they're in spate or they're in drought and they haven't got the option. We have three lakes to fish. We've Locker Coast, like I said, Clune Lake and Cara Lake. So. Good man, Mike. Here, Mike. How are you? How's it going? Hello, Tom. How are you keeping? Not too bad. Listen, just first thing I ask you there, you said there's 12 kilometres above the lake, yeah? Yeah. Uh, on the upper car. How much of that is, let's say, a fishable river? Yeah, it's a, it's a strange um, character of a system, really. Immediately above... Blackstone's Bridge, where you've been, Tom, often, you know, yeah. just above the bridge there, even though it is a spate river, we have a lot of big, really big, deep areas in the river, big, deep pools. In fact, some of the pools there are 15 to over 20 feet deep in places, huge pools, 100 meters long. And you, you have really good, um, really good protection, I suppose, really, for the spring stock. So from there, from Blackstone's Bridge up, you've probably... You have about, like I said, about 12 kilometers. Now, some of that is mountainous, streamy, um, free-flowing river, rocky. Um, might not be all fishable when it's very low, but those bigger pools that I just spoke of, they're easy fished, even despite the low water. Sometimes they're easy fished. They hold a good resident population of fish throughout the whole, the whole year. Nice. Now, you know, you might not have the opportunity always to, to fish a fly over them in, in low conditions, but you can certainly, you know, we allow we allow shrimp fishing, we allow worm fishing, spin fishing. Oh, you know, so we're open to all options. But uh, and tell me as well, then the lakes you were mentioning there, do they hold? Do the salmon hold in them too? They do. Clune Lake in particular now would be the spring side of the system. Early in the season, more springers run through from Cara Lake up our system and more or less straight into Clune. And beyond Clune, there's another little lake, Loch Ray. If you look at that on the map, you'll see it. Yeah. Right up to the head of the system. The other side of the system, Loch Akos, that's more of a grills. Grills, maybe from end of May on, the fish start to, to, to divert and go up there. And like, it's not really it's not really productive early in the season, but certainly late in the year, you can have great fishing in Loch Akos to the fly, you know, trout fishing, trout flies, wet fly fishing. It's fantastic. Right, so yeah. Loch Akos would be more like when the grills run. More like, like when the grills in the uh, back end run, yeah. But Clune Loch then, that you're saying, Loch Clune, yeah? Yeah. Uh, like, would you, is there a chance of catching a springer in those legs? Oh, absolutely. Leg? Yeah. yeah. It's, a fan, it's a fantastic spring salmon fishery. It's, it's a really good spring salmon fishery. It's only, it's only, it's reasonably small. It's about a kilometre long, three quarters of a kilometre wide. One boat, two at the most, that's always on that lake. And uh, right. 
like it's part of our fishery, so it's easy control to fishes that are what goes on there. But it's a it's, it's a really good unspoiled as well, Tom. You know, very yeah. little agriculture up there. Um, we have the sheep obviously on the hills and the mountain. It's probably been the same for the last fifty years. So we're looking that way too in the car fishery. The car area is not predominantly heavy agriculturalized. Do you know what I mean? You'd have have sheep, sheep. Yeah, more uplands predominantly. Stuff, yeah. yeah, so it's not. Not a lot of um, fertilizer spreading and all that, and with the water framework directive and, uh, and the sulfates and all that, they're, they're looking after the system pretty well. Like, is it? You see, the lock anger picks up me there. You know, I, you know, I've always <laughs> been thinking of the Upper Carras River, and as soon as you said lake, you know, I sort of my ears pricked up and everything. Right. I, I wasn't that aware of Clune Lake. I remember hearing about Lock of Coos, all right, but yeah. I wasn't aware of Clune Lock. So that's um, yeah, well, the small, small bucket list. Yeah, the brown trout fishing is on, on both lakes. It's phenomenal. Now, the trout are small. You know, yeah. we're looking at two and three fish to the pound, you know, uh, 10, 11-inch trout, you know. Uh, maybe a good one might be a pound and a half. Um, there's the occasional good trout comes off there. As a matter of fact, last year there was a nice trout caught there. He was eight to nine pounds on the wet fly in Clooney. They yeah. show up every now and again. Yeah. Obviously, there's not a huge population of them in the southwest, but they are there, the odd one. But a fantastic sport for... Uh, a beginner fly fisher, very easily free rising fish, and yeah. you know, you look well, obviously that. worth it as well. I mean, you can have that as well, but if there's a couple of springers knocking around in it, uh, that well, really adds to it. I'd say that's just it. When you're, when you're wet fly fishing there, you don't know what's going to come to. Yeah. And there is a big population of fish there, uh, brown trout, and like you've the, you've the salmon and you've the grills in a little bit later on. It's a, it's a good, it's a really productive, productive lake, yeah. I'm just sorry, just while you're talking there, I just went on to Google Maps to have a look at Clune Lock. So initially I went into the Cara fishery there and I was looking, I was like, where is that Clune Lock? And couple, how much further up you have to go? Yeah. Like I was just following the river and I'd recommend anybody just check it out, CLOON Clune Lock, and then go into Google Street View and there's a road. Like, and I'm just, I'm, as we're talking here, I'm just on it and you're on this road and it's like you're kind of nearly in a just like a, how would you call it like a, in terms of the kind of the flat part of the valley like you're just mountain peaks all around you yeah it's, um, it's, it's, it's like a little glaciated valley yeah, yeah. It, it reminds me a lot of the west of ireland as well back yes. around you know Loch Finney and those places tam near you yeah. where it's, yeah. it's really remote it's wild and you have a few sheep and a couple of households that are farming but it's really beautiful scenery it's unspoiled you know what i mean yeah. so it is up quite a bit and yeah, it's, it's great. It's great it's to a have. Stunning part. You mentioned actually in terms of um, the space, because you're at that bit where you are, like, do you obviously look where drier summers are getting now, Mike? Are, are you still getting enough rain during the summers? Um, or are you noticing as well, look, it's been hit by the kind of the, the, the drought like conditions we're getting? Yeah, well, one thing I can certainly say in the 20, just over 20 years that I've been up there, Maybe at the beginning of that time, like go back to this is go back to two thousand. We'll just say here from the two thousand on. Um, if you had a really good night's rain, you'd definitely get three good days fishing out of a, a good summer spate or any spate for that matter. You'd get a, a prolonged, slower release of a flood lasting longer. These days, I have to say, the flood seems to rise quicker and fall off a lot quicker. I think. Partly to part of the reason that that could be maybe, you know, a lot of farmers up there now, they've moved on with their machinery. Nearly every farmyard now has a little digger, a little mini digger. All the drains that might have been half clogged or half blocked years ago with weeds, wet, wet areas in the land have been drained. The rain seems to get into the system quicker 
and leave the system quicker. Certainly, we're being it's definitely affecting us. The dry, like last year, obviously was a very dry season, and you know, I suppose there's no point saying otherwise. Our catchbook suffers because of that. You know what I mean? Having said that, Carra Lake is a good um, a good reservoir. You know, below our system. So despite the fact we might have we might suffer a lot from the drought conditions. Cara Lake can hold the fish until such time they can run the upper Cara. And ultimately, it's the upper Cara they're going to spawn in. You know, they're going to go up into the upper reaches of all those little streams and tributaries we spoke of. And yeah, definitely the rain the rain has a bearing on our fishing. Springers, spring salmon wood, is that the best time of year for the upper Cara? Yeah, the upper Cara over the years, it was renowned as an early spring fishery. I mean, really early. Um I mean, we've encountered fish there in late December, and uh, you know we we collect we collect broodstock in the fishery, and uh, quite often, especially like up until maybe the last four to five years, we've often got a, a fresh spring salmon at the end of December, uh, mixed in with the with the with the fish in the system. You know, so it's an early fishery. We always have been an early fishery. Having said that, we re- we generally don't open until mid February. But that's more of a, uh, you know, more of an effort. Maybe not to over, overemphasize the catching of kelts and things like that. And you know, just a little bit. Our bookings too would be quite light early in the season. You know, you know, seventeenth of January is the traditional opening day down in the southwest. We leave it go until about the fifteenth of February, four weeks later. And I think even if you look at this year's catches, even some fisheries have been open since the new year. You know, um, something maybe to think about. You know. Uh, just a little bit later gives the kelts a chance to get away out out of the system, and you're not handling those kelts either. I know a lot of them, a lot of them will die if they if if they're handled, and even even if they even if they're not handled, a lot of them die. Yeah. But certainly certainly more beneficial um, not to open till a little bit later. Anybody that comes to fish then has a better chance. Maybe there's an extra couple of fish in the pools as opposed to fishing 17 to January. There wouldn't be a lot of fish in the, in some of the some of the places on the river, you know. So that's the yeah. reason we don't open till a little bit later, but we are an early fishery. There does seem to be a trend that the runs are becoming that bit later, the spring runs. They are. You, yeah. I, I'd agree with that. Yeah, I think, I mean, next week is St. Patrick's week. I think 20 years ago in our fishery, that was the peak of the spring salmon run. And it was in a lot of other fisheries as well, yeah. all over the country. I think the peak now, depending, depending on water levels and rainfall, Sometimes it can be as late as the last week of April going into May even. You know, sometimes oh. it's quite late. Or a longer period when the fish run, not starting until you're looking now, not really getting going until the 17th of, 17th of March, pushing into April and on into May. Whereas years ago, it would have been all over. Come, come the end, you know, second or third week of April, years ago, you'll be waiting for the grills. You know, right. that's not the case anymore. Yeah. Tell me this, Mike, what's uh, the size of the springers you'd get on average? Like? Yeah, despite it being a small, we're a small fishery, the average fish here like, is, a, is a good solid, uh, good solid spring salmon. Um, the, the average fish here is about 10 pounds weight. We're not, we don't get, we're not famous for huge fish, but we have a really good standard of fish here. You know, I would, I would confidently say 10 to 11 pounds is our average springer here. We wouldn't have really small fish. And we, we're not also, you get the odd big fish, but, you know, it's a good stamp of a springer here. Uh, good, good, good quality fish. Yeah. Mike, what's the record? What's in the fishery? Um, I think the record was caught in Clune Lake um, in 2000, 
and eight by a Northern Ireland gentleman. I think the man has since passed. His name was Robert Wilson, and he got a fish in Clune Lake estimated about 28 pounds. And that was a big fish. Yeah, I didn't see the fish now, and unfortunately there was no um, camera footage or no photographs taken of that fish, but there was three people in the boat, and they measured the boat on the back of a sheeling. They were fishing in a sheeling boat, and the boat on the back seat, at the back seat of the boat, they put the fish on the boat just to take unhook him and stuff on a mat. And they told me his head was on one gunnels and his tail was on the other. So, and he was deeper than the seat. So they were only trying to estimate. And yeah. all three of them were pretty experienced anglers. So around that, I got a fish myself maybe uh, four years ago in Lake trolling with two gentlemen from Kildare. And that fish, would have, he was I estimated him at about 24. And, you know, you get the odd one like that. But, of yeah. course, yeah. those fish are few and far between these days. Yeah. And when's the most popular time for anglers um, to visit Carriage, generally? Yeah, from now on, um, we're getting going with our bookings. Um, the spring salmon fishing, April, May, April and May, really March, April and May, and then later the grills run. But now, now, now is when we're really starting to see, um, you know, bookings that have came in over the last five to six months. People, some of the people that I'm taking bookings from or have, have been taking bookings from for the last 10 years. Indeed, they've been here since they were came with their grandfathers when themselves were maybe 15 or 17 years of age. Now they're in their 60s. You know, they've been coming. I could tell you nearly, I could show you our logbooks and I could tell you who was on the fishery on a certain week, every week for the last 30 years. Matter of fact, I have two gentlemen this week from uh, Oberammergau in Germany. And I think he's coming, one of them is coming over 50 years. Oh, wow. You know? <laughs> yeah, he's, he's coming over 50 years. I think his first trip here was when he was seven or eight with his grandfather. So there's these are the kind of people that come. And we have a lot of Irish clients as well. Um, a mixture of it. A lot of them now over the years would have been more and more continentals, you know, French, German. The river is owned by a Swiss, a Swiss man. Um, and we have a lot of influence then from Europe, you know, a lot of English as well. We get a lot attended the CLA game show there uh, a good few times when it was being held and got a lot of interest and a lot of bookings from the UK. So handy in the UK, you see, you can put your stuff in a Jeep and hop on a ferry. That time, Cork Swansea was running. And for the yes. southeast coast and southwest coast of of, um, of the UK, geez, we got a, a big, big continued contingency of people from Devon, Cornwall, all around that area. Just jump on it. They're here literally... You know, a couple of hours in, into Cork and where they where they went. So yeah, mixture of everybody really. But um, some weeks some weeks have are booked out. You know, could have the same person on the same week for the last twenty years, and they'll take that week and take their chance, knowing that if they get wet weather, it's going to be good. Yeah. It's not, and if it's if it's going to be dry, well, you know, you resort back to the boats, and you know, that's the way it is. You take a chance. Take a chance. You know, these, yeah. these guys are booking. Maybe booking, maybe booking in September for the following March or April or May. So they have to fish mm. when they're here. And if it's good, yeah, not. Maybe that's more the reason on a spade system you don't have a lot of uh, maybe more regulars because to book it, the water has to be right. And if you're living in, you know, like you were talking about living in Galway, if it's dry, you know it's dry all over Ireland. You're not gonna, you're not gonna emphasize yourself on doing a, a bit of fishing on a spade system. How's it been actually? So what are we? You've opened. You're probably opened about three weeks now at this stage, are you? Mike? Opened three weeks, and the weather has been relentlessly dry, as you know. Mm. Um, I got one fish on the 15th of February, uh, spinning with a with a flying sea, um, and uh, you know we hadn't had a lot of 
activity on the river then because it's been so hard, dry weather, really low river river is at summer level, you know, and yeah. we haven't had a lot of lot of people fishing. I've three this week. They started today's Wednesday. They started Monday morning, but they haven't they've had a few kills now, two or three kills every day. But uh, yeah, they haven't had a haven't had a chance to encounter a springer yet. And you know that's the way it is. Conditions have been atrocious though, Mike. Conditions are bad, Tom. They're really bad. All over they're the country. bad. Yeah. I mean, they're bad up here. They're bad. You know, I mean, yeah. you know, I mean, you've been up fishing around here. The, it's just, I mean, as you said, the lakes are here nearly at summer level. Yeah, sure. I was out in, like, I, know, I was out in Loch Mass myself last week and it's dropping yeah. fast. And I heard Corrib is really low. I haven't been there yet. But yeah, all really over, low. I mean, you can't really judge, you can't really judge the amount of fish caught in the country because the kitchen conditions have been so dry. I mean, mm. I mean, Every river, nearly every river now is a spare river in a certain sense, but mm. certainly conditions are low everywhere and that affects us and it affects everybody else as well. Talk about silver. I was, uh, I was fishing the Blackwater last week and uh, yeah, you're right. Like I was wading, you know, pools there where you wouldn't go near at this time of year normally. Like, and uh, let's just say I discovered I had a, uh, a leak in my waders. It certainly was not summer conditions i can tell you <laughs> <laughs> Holy crap. Yeah, i yeah. felt that i tell you you'd want, you want, you want the double neoprene on your <laughs> yeah, yeah even then sure. like, yeah. levels might have been summer just yeah. the levels yeah just the levels, just the was, levels yeah. oh my god it was unreal but um i tell you mike tell us this talk to us a bit about the hatchery that's on the on the fishery um when it was introduced the reason for introducing it and how it has fared okay so yeah, I started there maybe in 2000, and not long after I started, um, the boss came to me and he said he'd like to have a hatchery. There always was a certain um, emphasis on a hatchery in the upper car for a long time. They used to plant out unfed fry, but always there was a little hut, incubate the eggs. When the eggs hatched out, they just went around with the bucket and planted them out. So we took it a step further then, and uh, we installed a few tanks and... Uh, you know, we set we set up we set ourselves up, and maybe the first release of fish in of smolts would have been uh, 2002. So, you know, 2002 we wanted to maybe complement the wild stock that was already in the river. But even at that sign 20 years ago, there was signs that the springers weren't doing as good as maybe they should be doing. So we said, look, there's a hatchery house there; it's half there. The incubation house was there in place, so we installed a few tanks and start a reed bed and different things like that that you need you need all these things for a hatchery and we started in 2002 and we released the fish in in april 2002 and i remember at the time a lot of people were saying oh you know um because you maybe brought those out over to small stage sooner than they would maybe in the wild that all those fish should be coming back as grills and of course, we only stripped multi-sea winterfish. Um, so we, we went ahead and when we stripped, we waited with baited breath in, in 2000 and 2003, but we didn't get a single fish back. And we know our fish because we don't micro-tag, but we do fin clip. Um, the year went by. The following year started in the spring. And I remember, I think it was around the 17th of February in 2004. The actual first two fish that were caught that year were both fin clipped. One was 11 pounds and one was 13 pounds. And that was the start of it. So we said then, yeah, uh, definitely, you know, despite what other people think, um, certainly did, did seem to us that it helped and it has been helping since. And uh, 
you know, we strip only multi-sea winter fish. We don't strip a lot of fish. Uh, maybe the way to go with a hatchery is to supplement rather than to take over, like in some fisheries. I know in Iceland and places, even if you look at the Ranga, if they had the hatchery program, they wouldn't have any fish because predominantly to that, I think 50 or 80 fish a year. Now they're looking at thousands of fish a year. With the Cara, they just wanted to help what was there. Strip maybe 10 to 12 multi-sea winter fish every year. They're looking at maybe 40 to 50,000 idle over every year. Not huge, but just an, just just a helping hand. I mean, those under under maybe different management and different conditions, those 10 to 20 fish could have been easily knocked on the head. And, you know, they'd never see spawning, not to mention incubation of their, their eggs being incubated, rather. So we started, like I said, started then, 2002, 2004 on, we started getting fish. We've been getting fish. We've been getting fish ever since. Clip fish and, you know, I would have... I would say maybe 30% of our catch book is made up of clipped multi-sea winter fish. We don't have any, we don't seem to get any grills. We strip, you know, we don't get a late run of fish into the system other than late springers that maybe got held up, like I said before, got held up in Carolee. There is no fresh run of fish, of backing fish into Cara system. And, uh, you know, a fish that's, 80 centimetres or, or bigger, we know that that is a multi-sea winter fish. So when we collect our broodstock, we go around them with a, more or less like a draft net or sometimes we lift them with um, a landing net actually in the, when, they're, when they're paired off, when they're stream, you can hold the light over them and uh, a, sick, a, sick, a sick fish that's a sick hen, when I mean sick, I mean pregnancy sick. If they're sitting there, they're very inactive and you can actually walk up very carefully if you're, if you're cute enough and lift lift the fish into the landing net. Would you get the two in the same swoop? I, I often did get the cock and the head oh. together. Yeah, often, often. Yes. And indeed, if they're actually ready to spawn, we may strip them there and then on the spot and incubate their eggs together. It'd be like a natural selection. No, that's yeah. not always the case. Sometimes the fish are not ready to spawn, Tom, and we gather them up. Them. And uh, I, have a, I have a modified um, creamery tank, like the old bulk tanks that they used to go to the creamery. Stay in the steel tank, you bring your fish down to the hatchery. Sometimes they're ready to spawn. Other times you have to wait three or four days. And we we strip the fish and we uh, obviously cross 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 them with several different uh, male fish, cockfish to to know. So the the gene the gene pool is well mixed. You know what I mean? You know. So, but sometimes yeah, you do get them together. So that's the way we operate. Practically fifty thousand eggs a year. Um, it seems to be working for us. Uh, I think by supplementing what's there, it's not not really having a detrimental effect. And because we're using our own fish, genetically, we're not changing anything. Um, they're cara fish. We catch them, like I said, we catch them in Clune Lake and these places, and they're released back where we actually caught the, their parents, you know, uh, 14 months later, strip the fish, ready, the fish are ready to small, uh, 13 or 14 months. I'm coming up to this stage now. Um, I'll be clipping now shortly and releasing, releasing the small, they're not releasing the smalls and they're all good size, you know, maybe six, six inches, six, six inches, you know. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting as well. You know, you, you get to see the behavior of fish and you're handling adult fish all the time. And yeah, they're, they're tougher than maybe people think sometimes, you know. Yeah, I, I think you're right. That's, re that's really interesting, Mike. And like the returns, like what you're talking there, are maybe up in 30%. I mean, that's, that's phenomenal. Yeah, like, you know? like when, when, we, when we go out in December... Generally, maybe the week before Christmas is always a good time. 
when we go out and actually catch the broodstock. Um, sometimes on our catch book during the year, we'd say, oh, do you know, hasn't been so many, you know, some years are different. It depends on the survival rate of all the fish, not just carp, not just hatchery fish. I'm talking the fish in general in the system. But sometimes the percentage could be, we'd say, oh, guys, there aren't too many clip fish caught now. Do you know, some years are better than others. You know, something could happen to the smalls. They could run into a bit of bother, you know, with predation or whatever you have in the sea. But then when you actually go and you capture the fish, quite often you capture a clipped fish, like a 10, 12-pound fish spawning with a wild cockfish. So, you know, it is, it does work. It does work. To, it, it certainly works, you know, but um, just not, I wouldn't be saying that everybody listening to this podcast should go out or start the hatchery immediately. There's a lot to it. You know, it's expensive. Uh, it's expensive to run the tanks. You have a lot of legislation. You, you have uh, to be on site with the county council planning uh, discharge licenses intake licenses you need an you need an aquaculture license obviously you need you need even a license to store the food you know so it's it's pretty there's huge. a lot to it there's a lot to it yeah yeah wow yeah. yeah there's a lot to it so yeah it's working for us and we're, we can happily say I'm confident to say that yeah it's def- certainly helping the fish and maybe maybe that's why we're we are where we are um like 30% of the catch, we average maybe average 150, 160 springers, maybe 200 on a good year, and 30% of that makes up for quite a considerable number yeah, of fish. Yeah, does you know, Actually, whether, interesting there, just you mentioned it. Have you ever had a grills clipped? Uh, when I say we haven't had them, I, that's not true. We've had the odd one. You know, yeah, yeah. we've had the odd one here and there because obviously what happens in nature, when you put them in a small, you don't know when they'll go to sea. And uh, or, or, or what happens, or even what happens, sometimes you'll have a fish that'll be bothering, but generally or not, we don't get them. But we've had the odd one. I won't say we haven't had them, but it's been very few times. I'd say in the last the last 20 years, if I could say we had 10 grills, that'd be the most, you know, and they're very scarce, but more MSWs, you know? Yeah. And I, you know, yeah. So on advice from people that, knew their job prior to, I'm not saying I'm an expert in hatcheries or anything, I got great help, and I'm sure you know Dari Gibbons there, and uh, she gave me a lot of help, and she her background was from hatcheries years before. Another lady, Ethna O'Brien, she worked on the Scribe, and uh, I was just kind of following on from their advice and help when I started, and it seemed yeah, to be going well in our hatchery. Anyway, yeah, so. Working for you. Working for me anyway. Yeah. Mike, I th- and I think it's interesting, I think probably key to what you're saying there is it's supplemental. Supplemental, yeah. You're, not, you're mean, not trying to take over. I mean, you know, anything anything can happen with any kind of structure man-made. I mean, you have pipe work and you have uh, tanks and water flow. You have pumps, aeration, oxygen. And like last year, the water temperatures were up in late 20s, early to not 30 degree temperatures. I mean, you have to be really careful then when you have stock. You know, you have to make sure they're getting plenty of oxygenated water. So anything can happen. And if, if anything was to happen, thank, thankfully, touch wood, I can say we had no real disasters in our, in, in our hatchery uh, because our flow comes directly from the river and it's ambient temperature the whole time. But we do supplement it with aeration in times when it's hot. But if you were depending solely on a hatchery and you had a disaster or you had an issue, you would have no stock for the following or maybe two years later, you know, and... That, that that has been proven on other fisheries, you know. So, like I said, supplement. So, you know, 30% of what we get is clipped and the rest are wild fish, you know. So, it's a good balance, you know. But, yeah, supplement is the key, Dara. 
the wariness criticism exists around fisher around hatcheries and tom i'd be interested in your thoughts on it as well why do you think that is is do you think there's kind of a I think it comes back to maybe people are thinking, oh, you're just trying to replace what's there. But but there there still does seem to be a bit of kind of hesitancy around hatcheries, isn't there? Like it's almost like a dirty word almost like. It is like, um, I'd say, you know, probably I'm not a scientist and I've heard the advice that's been offered by various different institutions, scientists all over Europe. Um, I think that if you let a fishery get to the stage where it can't it can't sustain itself and then you go to have a hatchery you may be a little bit too late at that stage because you look at all the water rivers now are catch and release or are even close to anchoring you know you have brown tag systems i think when sometimes when it goes that far if you have to really restock a fishery like that you're left with no other choice to bring in maybe fish mm. from an outside fishery so maybe then as a scientist, I can see the argument. And that's probably one of the main reasons uh, they talk about this genetics of every river has its own genetics. I think if you were to have a hatchery starting from scratch, um, taking in fish from another fishery, they mightn't do so well as maybe their own native stock. So I'd say that's probably one of the biggest bearing factors. So like for us, we strip our own fish and we still have enough fish to go up and catch nine or 10 fish or a dozen fish to strip. There's probably fisheries out there that would struggle to do that or maybe have the ability to do that. Maybe the topography of the of the fishery or the geography of the fishery wouldn't allow them. It can be rough sometimes, no spawning areas, but we can do it. But I think that's probably the one of the biggest limiting factors why why the approval isn't given to some fisheries. You know, genetics, if there isn't enough stock there initially, like depending on stock coming from outside to build up your fishery may not be the may not be the answer and there's other other topics in there as well and you know they talk about survival rate of fish that are maybe incubated and uh, fed artificially that they're not used to feeding in the wild but all these things are great but I, like that I keep I keep emphasizing I'm not I'm not a scientist but what I can say is the smalls in your tank are in the tank in our hatchery I mean they've never been anywhere only in an incubation tray and then stages up to a certain size tank, been fed artificially, been fed again at another stage. You grade them out and you you have them in an outside tank, maybe a three to four meter tank, two meters of water. But I know one thing, you drop a worm in there and they've never seen a worm. Or if you drop a fly in there or a daddy long legs, they'll take it. So, (laughs) you know, I know you might think you're feeding them and you're changing them, but I think... The call of the wild is still instilled in a lot of those creatures. And I think that given the chance, I think maybe down the road, you might see more and more hatcheries, especially with the way the runner fish are going. I mean, if you think about it, there's been very few creatures in this world that haven't got some kind of a help when they're in danger from man, either in safari parks or incubation zoos or uh, rehabilitation of certain species. And I think the salmon is going to be no different. That's my own view. That's my own view. What's your take on that, Tom? Well, I mean, you probably know this, but currently within, you know, the, the, tre- the I say trend again seems to be anti-hatchery, particularly from the, the, from the science viewpoint. But, and I can sort of understand where a lot of it is coming from, particularly if you're, if you're introducing outside um, 
you know, outside genetics, outside stock or whatever. But I think if it's my, my own viewpoint, if it's something like and, and what you're talking about there, Mike, something like it's within your, the, the stock is all native carrot stock, you know, and it's done very much. And, and also as well, when it's supplemental, you know, yeah. I, I, I can only see it as something really positive. You know, I can't see where the damage has been done. Um, I can't understand like where you're bringing in, you know, stock from broodstock from outside the system yeah. or non-native, non-native broodstock. Yeah. Um, yeah, but then you look, I mean, you know, you look at brown trout all over the world. You know, brown trout is only indigenous yeah. to Europe. Okay. It's only, in fact, I'll never forget, I had a guy out once who caught fish in Argentina yeah. and New Zealand, a guy from San Francisco, and he caught a fish with me on the duck fly a couple of years ago. Caught one in the morning, the first thing he did, he goes, said to me, he says, that is the first indigenous brown trout I've ever caught in my life. And I never thought of that before. And I said, because, yeah, I fished in New Zealand, I fished all over the States, and I fished in South America. So, you know, that's where he was coming from, where it was completely, it wasn't, it was, it was something that's been there for years. But what it, my point initially was, you know, if they brought brown trout, supposedly Loch Leven, Loch Leven stocked half the world. But, you know, and it, and it, it has survived and prospered. And right. um, so it can work. Now, but the argument is then, of course, that you're bringing in something that's going to displace the native inhabitants. Okay. So I can sort of understand that, be it in, in some case, and I forget the name of the fish in New Zealand. Uh, there's a native fish and brown trout have displaced them in a lot of systems. Um, so I can understand it from that. But if you're just looking within species, I still think I am kind of, I'd be hesitant to bring in outside stock, particularly with, with trout. I think if you can work with the, 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 the indigenous, not the indigenous, the, the native stock of a system. Yes. Yeah, the uh, I think I think you're right, Tom. No, that's the mm. way we're going. No, there's yeah. one contradiction in that whole thing, and that's if you just look back at, um, look at what's going on. I think it's Patagonia, the sea trout fishery. I think mm. it's in, is it in Buenos Aires or somewhere like that. I think those fish uh, initially. I think those fish uh, initially Fargo, Argentina. Yeah. yeah, they came yeah. from Scotland. You yeah. know, it was it was a Scottish man or an Englishman that brought those those, and it didn't happen there for a long time. It, they put the fish, introduced the eggs, and 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 now it's one of the most prolific. Of course, maybe the feeding there is is different. But yeah, I think I think um, down the line, I think maybe um, it'll be the savior of of, of the salmon. And mm. you know. but the thing about it is, I'm like, isn't it? like I said, you don't want to be doing it when it's too late. You know where you're trying. Yeah, you know, it's very that, true, Mike. So yeah. if there's a hesitancy, and then suddenly it's like yeah. it's too late. It's like, well, you're doing it for the wrong reasons. Then, like you know. Um, yeah, well, that's it. You know, I think first key is to if you're gonna if you're gonna do it. Do it before it gets to the stage where it's at the tipping point where there's, you know, the goose that lays the golden egg is gone and you haven't got the yeah. opportunity to use those genetics that were maybe bred into those fish for millennium, you know, and taking fish from another fishery. Yeah, I'm not sure how that would work. It doesn't, it, we, I have, I've never done it, never had the opportunity or to discuss that in depth with anybody, but I know that genetically our own fish are from the car and I welcome anybody to come down and have a look or see the system and you know it's great it's also great it's not just great for anglers it's also great for kids I'm doing a lot of a couple of times now I've had a couple of visits from TY students from Brota Trudy and Killarney um, uh, you know secondary stu secondary students and they come out and you show them the life cycle you can show them the, the eye over for instance you can show them you know eight or ten weeks later you can show them 
the actual Elvins in the tray, you go from there onto the fry, onto the par, and even onto the small. And if they're there at the right time in December, you can show them the adult fish pin strip. So you can educate people too. It's, it's good. It's not just not just for, for kids, obviously for adults too, but yeah, yeah. It's, it's good good to be able to show people, you know? I know. Well, I tell you, I just know from an angler's perspective, uh, I haven't fished the car, but I definitely want to, um, is I fished Delphi and I have not complained. <laughs> When I've got like a 10, 12 pound salmon on the hatchery, I haven't got off. That's, you know, I, you know all, I can, all I can still remember is the fight off the fish and landing yeah. it. That's it. Yeah, that's, that's it. it. Yeah. That's yeah. it. Like, so I'll have to test out that theory in the car next, Mike. You will actually. Yeah, that's it. More welcome. <laughs> yeah. Um, Mike, tell us, how did you get involved um, as a fishery manager? What's your own background? I suppose if I was being truthful, my own background, I'm, orig- I'm originally from uh, a place called Cremont. Um, it's on, on the shores of Castlemaine Harbour. And since at a very young age, um, I used to fish with my father, who was a commercial draftnet fisherman in Cremont. So my, my first introduction to salmon or really, or any, any, anything to do with salmon was, uh, yeah, with my dad, since young out, out, in, the, out in the boats. Uh, there was a lot, of, lot more fish there that time, and they used to fish there, the draftnet fishing in Cremont, in Castlemaine Harbour. So that's where, I first, that's where I first had anything to do with salmon. And uh, of course, um, teenager, then you'll be on your bike, and we had a little lake near us there in Cremon, a couple of little rivers like the, the estuary of the Cara system. And indeed, Cara River wasn't, it was only 10 minutes being on the bike. We used to fish there. And of course, anyone belonging to me at that stage would be like, put away that rod, you know, you'll never get nothing out of the rod. You know, <laughs> you know it was all commercial orientated nets you'd be you'd be up in the morning cleaning nets and helping your father to rope the nets and this and that with when they saw you with the rod they definitely didn't didn't like it but as it progressed through my own childhood then I done a bit of fishing and uh, fished here and there uh, locally with the, the river Lawn of course and uh, the Cara system and Cara Lake and like I said little local lakes around I went on from there then I kept it up over the years with a couple of friends and uh, that's how I that's how I just started off. How I started in the Upper Cara, really. I was a carpenter by trade. I was working in the building sites, and uh, I first started there doing little. I knew about the fishery, and we often, I you know, I remember in the trout and salmon years ago, there would be reports from the lawn, and there would be reports from the Cara system. Is the, the only real way of knowing about fishing that time was in the back pages of the trout and salmon. We used to read this trout and salmon every month, you know, Jesus, Car- Carol Lake was this fish and that fish and this fellow and caught that. And we'd be like, God, oh, we have to get up there. So I eventually made it up there anyway. And I said to the, the manager, he was, he's Vincent O'Shea, no relation of mine. He's, he's still around, helping out. Um, I said to him, look, I haven't a lot of money, but if you were ever stuck for a few jobs along the bank, a few huts or styles or you know, a little bit of fencing or whatever, what a, cutting bushes, streaming the grass. I said, I'd be interested giving you a hand. I said, we might do an exchange for this fishing. So that's, that's actually how I, <laughs> that's actually how I started there. And um, yeah, I'd done that for a while and he saw that I was maybe handier with a rod than, than a lot of people, a lot of the visiting English that mightn't have great experience. And so he'd, he'd ask me then, would you go with, you know, with a certain client there for a few hours and, he soon saw that I was there to get on with people and do a bit of fishing, caught them a few fish or help them to catch a few fish. Uh, I progressed from being maybe doing a few days gilling there during the summer and things. Um, I started then working there at night time. Um, we used to do uh, 
the upper car, car always had its own water keepers, you know, two or three water keepers policing, policing the system, you know, we're out, we watch it, you know, obviously poaching is a problem and that time probably there was more poaching, but started there then doing a little bit of night work on duty up and down, checking the pools, making sure everything was okay. And that man I mentioned, he was coming to retirement and he said, look, you're here. There's not too many with a fishing background like you and also been able to do the maintenance. So he said, would you be interested? He said, I'll be retiring in a, in a couple of years. Would you be interested? Oh, of course. <laughs> it was like a dream, a dream come true to any angler. So the, I put away the hammer and the chisel and I started work there in 2000. In, yeah, I started work there part-time, probably 97 and maybe took it on a full-time around 2000. So I'm over there, 23 years I'm there now. So yeah, still still there. But that's how I, that's how it came about, so... And little did you think uh, when you were helping your father <laughs> with the nets yeah. in the harbour, you know, looking up to the mountains that you'd be ended up near the top of the system. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, that's yeah. it. I mean, having experience with with um, knowing knowing a little bit of, well, I won't say, like knowing a little bit about net fishing and draft net fishing, that's also handy being a fishery manager. You know, it helps a lot when you catch them in the rooster. But also, I can tell the telltale signs maybe of, uh, nocturnal activities along the estuary or along the lake. I, I, I know what to look for. I know when to look for them. <laughs> yeah, so we've always had our own keepers. Just like, you know, it's important. So I like I just like to point out we have our own water keepers, but we also on a sh- we also went to the trouble, which is a very important point I want to make about the carol system. Uh, about six or eight years ago there, we also went to the trouble and we bought a share in the netting rights of the estuary. Um, there was a private netting right there for years and years, similar to what's happening in the loan. And uh, there wasn't much point having a hatchery and policing the river and trying to get anglers, charging anglers and get trying to get anglers fish when they came on holiday. So we went and we moved and we, there's a company there called Seafin Limited, they actually own the lower part. And we went to them and we offered them a few bob in such a way that we have a, a share in the netting rights. And of course now we have a legal veto they, the net will never be fished again and they have a 50% share, we have a 50% share. We can't be fished without agreement from the other party. That suits us and that suited them. So we actually set the net, we set the net aside so there's no commercial fishing in the car estuary anymore, which is also benefiting us. And it was also helping us, you know, we talk about the hatchery and the hatchery will do so much, but protection and setting the net aside I think there's, that, there's not that many fisheries can say that we've done as much as we can do. Also by policing, policing Cara Lake, we don't we don't have any really jurisdiction on Carol, or we don't have any rights to Cara Lake. It's a public lake, in a sense, you know, it is a public lake. But we also have to keep an eye on that, and I suppose we're doing, I suppose we're doing the state a favour really by policing the whole system, including Cara Lake and the estuary. So, just wanted to make that point. So it's important. That, you know, people have but it's true. It's, it's like a, it's a double-edged sword. I mean, yeah. as you said there, it's very true. Like you know, having a hatchery is all very good, but like if if the estuary yeah. and they're getting fleeced at the estuary, you know, that's it. I mean, you know, what's the point? I've been I've been approached Tom, by different places. You know, quite local to me here, and you know, all mad keen. Oh, we'll have a hatchery and we'll do this and we'll do that. There should be a hatchery on the lawn. There should be a hatchery on you know, different places, the field and all, all other different places. But having hatchery, you want to make sure the gate is open because there's no point spending thousands and it's quite expensive to rear smalls and have somebody that's legally 
created yep. by the government with a draft net in the estuary reaping your rewards. So that was why one of the reasons we went there and we removed that net from the estuary. So yeah, that won't that doesn't that doesn't I mean I know the river field there is a catch and release at the moment and you know um, they were talking about I think there used to be a hatchery, they were talking about reviving it, but I think some of the people that wanted it revived was to increase the quota just to allow the nets to continue fish. Obviously that's that's a crazy idea. Tell me this, Mike. Um, I'm interested in um, your father being um, the, the netsman. Did did he ever fish then as a hobby? Never, no. Yeah, that's, that's I'm fascinated by that. He, 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 no, he didn't, never fished. Um, my father's living in Manchester at the moment. He's not living in Kerry, but he doesn't, he, he never was an angler, never had aspired to be. And like I said, you'd be, they'd be looking for you to do a job, you know, they'd be at home, maybe... The spuds had to be dug or, you know, the, the grass had to be cut or maybe the turf had to be brought home or something like that. Where where, where, where was I? I'm sure, that'd be holy war. You'd be down at yeah. the fishing. You know, and and come here, was there anybody like, did you have uncles or anybody that did a bit of rod fishing? No? No, not a, not, no. No, no other, no. You, know, you, you fell know from the sky, Mike. I can't, I don't know where I got it. I, I just had interest, I suppose I just interested in fishing my life. I mean, I like being out in the open. Yeah. And, uh, that's where I got it, and the, the love of being outside. And you know, of course, when you when you were young, you start off with your little warming rod, or you progress to a bubble and fly it in, and you'd be great. And like, I mean, I can even remember fishing with a with a safety pin. You know what I mean? We hadn't hooks even. You know what I mean? And uh, and a nut as a weight, and we hadn't even a rod at that stage. We just put out little lines and play football on the shore of the lake and check the lines every now and again. We caught mostly eels, but it was fishing. And that's all yeah. that matter. Yeah, so my son, my son, thankfully, you now Ty, you know Ty. Yeah, uh, Tiger's fishing, fair play, brilliant, Tyg is, great, Tyg is great crazy, to see him fishing. Crazy for the fishing as well, and yeah. uh, he's gotten into the fly tying there now lately, so I have my own personal fly tire as well, and so, fantastic. <laughs> I will wrap up. Happy day. It is amazing though, isn't it, like that your dad's never, you know, no, working just, in fishing, just never interested in outside of the job. Like, Yeah, I mean, you talk about when you go back to that stage when they were fishing in Cremon, I mean, there could have been anything up to 2025, 20, what they called, uh, like, bankers, they called them. They were, like, local boats, maybe 20-foot boats, open boats, with much similar to an angler's fancy or, or a lake boat, but slightly bigger for the sea. And that time there was 20 people, 20 boats fishing with maybe two people in each boat, and they all caught a few fish. There was a lot more fish there at that time. And, indeed, I can remember, I can remember the day my father stopped fishing. The fishing, he wouldn't, you know, maybe even pay for the gasoline sometimes. Yeah. We couldn't pay for the petrol. Nets were expensive. They had to pay a license fee. I don't know what it was, three or four hundred pounds at the time, I think. Um, and you know, more and more regulations and things like that. And it just wasn't viable for a, a man with a family to be going down there. It's like a gamble, sure enough. If you had a good week, you'd have a few bob. If the weather was bad or the fishing was bad, you hadn't. Yeah, no. And uh, he sold he so he sold up quite a you know, he sold up the boat, he sold up his gear. And he was truck driving for years. Uh, yeah, he, he left it behind him. So I was in the buildings, obviously, at that stage. I, there was no future for a young man in Cremon that time for salmon fishing. Now, Cremon yeah. has moved on since there. There's massive production of oysters and mussels there, uh, more so oysters in recent years. So there's not that much fishing in Cremon anymore, despite what people think. That Casamain Harbour is, you know, uh, being fished very hard. You need only have a look there. In the middle of end of May, beginning of June, when the grill should be around, you might see four or five boats down. Now, if you're looking, it's not 
it's not something for the younger man because it simply doesn't pay. One thing I want to ask you, and I just thought of it there about your dad. Do you think when your dad, when he got a big, like, and, I, and I, this would be to all net fishermen, you know the way, now the three of us here are rod fishermen, and we all get a buzz when we catch a fish. Would your dad have got a buzz when it, there was a big haul in the net? Aside from the fact of, okay, it was naturally because there was the, there was the financial side of it. But do you think he got a buzz or do, do net fishermen get a buzz when they haul in the net? Um, is, there, is there a crossover? This is yeah. what I'm trying to say. Is there a crossover well, from the, a rock fisherman to a net fisherman? Well, I can only talk from a personal point of view. I think the last time I fished was the year, it would have been the year of maybe my leaving certificate, whenever that would have been. I won't say how long ago that was. But 2011, least, Mike, yeah? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> it, spot on. But uh, we, we were there, and I used to fish with a neighbour, and that neighbour actually was the man that took the licence from my father, because you could allocate your licence if you were giving it up that time. I think nowadays you can't. They just go dead. But that time you could. I, I'm going back like when I was 16, 17 years of age, you know? Um, I remember fishing with him. And I'll tell you, without sounding, without the risk of being lynched by my fellow rod fishermen, there was mornings down there when, you know, a beautiful summer's morning, going out in the boat, setting your net. And indeed, it was a bit of a buzz to see fish coming to the net and splashing. I mean, it was a way of life. I loved it myself. And if it was viable, um, it was viable for years, you know, it was a way of life for all, not just not just in Cremon, but all over the west of Ireland and indeed other parts of Ireland. Look at all the H3 fishermen that are still fishing. It is a way of life. It was traditional. It was a buzz, and he certainly got a buzz and the enjoyment of having a few fish. And always, you know, we ate well at home because, you know, you, you had a fish that was maybe damaged and wasn't fish for mar- fit for market. So, like, quite often when I was in school, the mainstay was salmon sandwiches, do you know what I mean? <laughs> and, like, to, to ask, you're asking me, was there a buzz? There was. I experienced that myself as a young fellow, the excitement to get up in the morning on a lovely morning, going fishing mm. and uh, catching fish. It's the same, it, kind of similar to what you'd be, Tom, when you're driving out of Ross Hill into a lovely southwesterly and a few, <laughs> may, and a, a few may fly blowing off the shore. It's, it's yeah. the same. I, I suppose in all, if you don't, they wouldn't be at it unless they enjoyed it. And yeah. I'd have to say, yeah, farm would be, the farm would be good when they were getting a few fish, but yeah. not no. so good, not so good when the fishing was bad. <laughs> Unlike <laughs> us, rod fishermen. Yeah, yeah, that's it. You, we can we can enjoy fishing for pleasure, but for them, yeah, yeah, yeah that's true. Actually, yeah. different, yeah, different ball game altogether. Final question to you, Mike. Um, what was your most memorable fish caught in the fly? My most memorable fish caught in the fly. Well, I've had probably dozens of fish on the fly in the Upper Cara. Um, my most memorable fish myself that I caught probably wasn't maybe even in this country, if I can say that. It was I fished Iceland a few times and. Uh, learning to fly fish over, uh, not fly fish, but learning how to riffle hitch over there, wow. uh, which you know, they're on top of the water, floating line, floating leader, small, small tube fly riffling. I've been catching fish over there, 18 to 20 pounds of it on a floating line in gin clear water. Um, I think I, the biggest I got was maybe just coming up on 20. And I mean, to see him coming to the fly four or five times before he took it. It was like, that's my most memorable fishing. The fishing there indeed is spectacular. It's, it's fantastic in Ireland as well, but my most memorable fish, truthfully, was fishing probably the Ormasar River in Iceland. 
and that fish was close on twenty pounds. Yeah, it was it was good. But I've caught I've caught I suppose the beauty of being a salmon fisherman and being a salmon manager or working on a river constantly, I catch I suppose I'm blessed that I can catch a fish. I won't say when I like, but I've had so many opportunities to catch fish. But yeah, that's my most memorable fish that still stands out to me was with a single hand rod close and twenty pounds riffling. And actually just on that, what is it about like that the riffling is so prevalent in Iceland, but yet it it's not really tried tried over here or as successful. They don't well, seem to rise for that, do they? I think a lot of people here don't fish it, but believe it or not, in the upper Carrow, where the water is very clean and very clear, it works very well. Uh, nice. Floating line, it's lovely fishing. You can go down a pool with a, a floating line in a sink tip and not get a get a single response to a fly and go back down over them with a, a tube fly. And actually what's very good is like a a green peter muddler with the deer hair on top. Just fish it, just fish it on a floating line. And they, whatever it does, I don't know. I think it instills a little bit of craziness in the fish or maybe mm. brings out a little bit more aggression, but they can take it vigorously. Similar to where a trout would maybe rise to a fly behind the fly in the air and take the fly on the way down. You know, we've all experienced that. And I've experienced that several times in the upper car. And I've, I've done it. I fished it on the lawn as well. Maybe not to the same extent. I think you need, you definitely need maybe to know the areas you're fishing, where the fish are there, as opposed to fishing, sometimes when you're fishing in a river, you're fishing down maybe on some unproductive water and coming to a hot spot. I think if you concentrate more on a certain lie where the fish are, it's more productive. It's definitely very productive in the upper Cara, but definitely it seems to instill a little bit of, uh, it definitely brings out the aggression. I think the fish in Iceland, I don't know, I think they are a little bit more aggressive than what we have here. I mean, anybody that's fished there, you probably fished there, Tom, you probably seen that. Like, they are, can be sometimes just crazy, you know, and yeah. not just one fish, but a whole group of fish. Well, Mike, I have to say, listening to you and, and t- explaining to us about the fishery, the hatchery, um, it seems to be a very enlightened approach, and it's proven successful um, for the upper car. So continued success on that. And just if people are interested in finding out more, maybe doing a bit of fishing, um, what's the best way to get in contact yeah, well, I'm on, I I my 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 phone my phone number is ready available there on all the all fishing sites it's on the IFI website. Um, they'll get me on Facebook. Um, you know, uh, my number is out there. So you know, anybody that's interesting, interested in, in, in giving us a call, you know, you know, give me a ring. Um, obviously, like I said, a lot of the weeks are pre-booked, and it's, people probably say, you know, Jesus, you know, nothing available again this week, but. There is, you just have to keep on it, you know, because yeah. um, obviously you, you'd like to give somebody fishing maybe three weeks from now and you know that the bookings are a little bit quiet. But on a spade river for an Irish guy coming to a spade river, like I said before, you know, they can be very lucky. It, yeah. it could be quiet and it could be raining, that's fantastic. And it could be dry, and if it's dry, generally they don't come. But yeah, anybody wants to give me a shout and I do the best I can for them. That's all I. All I can say, promise them the chance, but not the fish. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Mike O'Shea, thanks very much for joining us. All right, thanks very much. Our thanks to Mike O'Shea for joining us on the show. And don't forget to rate, review and follow the Ireland on the Fly podcast on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. Plus, you can keep up to date on irelandonthefly.com as well as on Instagram. And myself and Tom will be back with another episode about the people and places of fly fishing in Ireland.